Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you with us again this morning. Thank you so much for prioritizing being here with God's people to praise him and to hear from his word. Uh, it, is, it is a joy to be together as we continue on in this great series that we've been enjoying through Philippians. Um, I, I hope you've been enjoying this series. I know it's been a slow, long series, but I just think it's been incredibly rich as God's word has been opened for us week by week. So um, today we reach chapter three, and uh, I suppose given the, the weeks and months that we've been spending in Philippians, we're actually going to take quite a big chunk today and look at 11 verses at once. Wow. Uh, and uh, so we are going to think about and unpack some of these, uh, these 11 verses at the start of chapter three. And in those 11 verses, there is a huge amount that we could unpack. Um, But today, I think there's one thing, one theme that God would want us to consider through those 11 verses, and it is that of confidence, confidence, Um, but maybe not confidence in the way that we might instinctively think of it. Um, As you think of confidence, I wonder what comes to mind. For example, the the Cambridge Dictionary definition, if that's any authority to go by, um, considers this as a definition of confidence, the quality of being certain of your abilities or having trust in people, plans, or the future. Confidence, being certain of your abilities, or having trust in people, plans, or the future. Or this other definition that I find, um, which, which seeks to place the attention very inwardly on ourselves. Confidence is a belief in oneself, the conviction that one has the ability to meet life's challenges and to succeed, and the willingness to act accordingly. See, confidence, I think, is, is something that we are all aware of, and it's often one of those aspects of life that comes to mind when we feel the lack of it. So when we find ourselves in situations where we feel low in confidence because of past experience, maybe, or because of some very unkind words from someone that has shot down our confidence, or simply we're just engaging in a new ex- experience and we don't have the credibility to draw confidence from, Maybe it's that time you you worked into that new place of work for the first time. You needed a sense of confidence, or or maybe we're certainly aware of a lack of it. Um, Maybe even walking into church this morning, you have felt the need to build confidence because it's a new experience. It can can feel daunting. Can I please express my, uh, and and echo what Tim said, you're so welcome here this morning, uh, particularly if if you're relatively new among us. But, but when we find ourselves low in confidence, one of the things we're often advised to do is to focus inwardly, to, to think about what we're good at, to, to gain knowledge, uh, to help us in that new experience, to build on something, to, to listen to feedback, to try new things. That will help to build confidence. And indeed, those are many good things if you're seeking to build self-confidence. But, but this morning from God's word, we are not going to be thinking about self-confidence in fact, that's the exact opposite of what we're going to be thinking about. Because what we're going to see through God's teaching through these 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3 is how we can be confident in our faith. And by that I mean confident in our salvation, confident in the basis of our faith. We will discuss being confident in sharing our faith, being confident in living out our faith. We've seen some of that already. But this morning, we're really going to see how can we be confident in the reality that many of us know salvation? What is our confidence of the fact that we are saved based upon? And one of the reasons why I think this is so important for us to consider is that many of us find ourselves lacking in that confidence at times. Many of us, and maybe you can relate to, to asking a kind of question that goes along the lines of, how can I really know that I'm saved? How can I really know that God loves me? I mean, look at me. How can I know that God loves me? 
And at its heart, that question has, has the sense of confidence. Can I have confidence that God loves me and has saved me? In other words, can I be sure of my salvation? And if I can, what do I build that on? What is that confidence based on? And the great news of the Bible is that to find the answer of that question, we do not look inwardly at ourselves. But rather, as we see from God's word through Paul this morning, to be confident in our faith is to be confident in Christ. Is to be confident in Christ, to take our eyes off ourselves, plant them firmly on him. Because the reality is, and if you take nothing else away from this morning, as we'll see from the first 11 verses of Philippians, my prayer is that we can leave here confident in our salvation because we can be confident in our Savior. We can be confident in our salvation because we can be confident in the one who saves us. Let's let's read these wonderful verses from Philippians 3. Um, If you have your Bible with you, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one of the red hardback book ones. Um, Can someone shout out the page number for that if you're looking at a a red one? 1180, thank you, sir. 1180 if you're looking along on on the chair Bibles. So Philippians chapter 3, let me read these first 11 verses. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And we'll finish our reading there. And Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would speak into our, our hearts and our minds. That Father, because of what you say here this morning, we will be transformed more into your likeness. That we will be more faithfully following you. We will be more surrendered to you. And so would you help us? And Father, I pray that you would help me as I share. It's in your wonderful name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. This is a a powerful passage, isn't it? Certainly Paul's passion is clear throughout, both in terms of his loving warning to the Philippian church and against those who are seeking to put confidence elsewhere, as we'll unpack in a second. But also his passionate appeal to lose everything for the sake of Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that pivot point that comes there at the start of verse 7 with that uh, yet another wonderful New Testament, but in verse 7, that will be the pivot point that we use this morning, where Paul switches his topic from thinking of those who put their confidence in the flesh 
to then how we should only put our confidence in Christ. That's what we're going to see as we go through this morning. So let's firstly consider what Paul's clear warning is from staying, staying away from placing our confidence in the flesh. And verses 2 and 3 show that there's obviously this group trying to influence the Philippian Christians to, to, to rethink the gospel or at least add something to the gospel. And, and it's, a, it's a common thing that has taken place in other settings as the Christian church has expanded into the Gentile world, mainly the, the Greek empire, the Greek culture, the Roman empire. And essentially, this is an argument from, uh, from a group often known as the Judaizers. So it's a Jewish group who were claiming that to receive salvation from God, one had to accept Jesus and also take on a lot of the Jewish religious practices. And the main example that's used is that of circumcision. And circumcision is a, is a biblical command. In Genesis 17, we see the, the, the command explicitly said, uh, put in Genesis 17, let me read a couple of verses from verse 12 to 14. For, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so this is clearly a biblical command. This was a serious act of commitment. This is the sign of the covenant that God gave to his people, Israel. So this was not something to be taken lightly, and I'm not wanting to do that this morning. However, the, the problem came when the outward symbol became the thing that was treasured more than what it represented. So, so for some people, circumcision itself had become the primary issue. It was the marker of what it meant to be a follower of God rather than what God had done in the heart of that person. So it became the be-all and end-all rather than understanding that someone had made a covenant commitment to God, was part of God's people, and the sign was expressed in circumcision. No, circumcision had taken on the primary role in itself. And so as the Christian church began to spread through the first century, this became a real point of contention for those outside of Judaism who came to faith in Christ. Because as I said, this group, these Judaizers, believed that to be a true follower of Jesus meant also adopting those Jewish practices. And as the church spread through the Roman Empire, it became clear, and we'll see an example of that in a minute from Acts 15, it became clear that this new covenant, that in the new covenant, Jesus had wholly fulfilled the old covenant, and therefore the new covenant was one of grace and faith, not of mere religious observance and of outward signs and symbols. As I said, we can see this so clearly in Acts 15. And let me just read a couple of verses from Acts 15 because God's word explains how the church deals with this issue. So in verse, uh, Acts 15, verse 2, we, say, we see that, or verse 1, sorry, we see, some people came down from Judea to Antioch, so outside of normal Jewish, uh, the Jewish land, were teaching believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So that was the crux of the argument. So unless you perform this sign, you cannot be saved. And so then Paul and Barnabas were brought into sharp dispute and debate with them. We would have loved to have been a fly in the wall for that. But they, Paul and Barnabas, were then sent from the church in Antioch to Jerusalem to discuss this with the apostles and the elders there. 
And again, some of the believers in verse 5 who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And let me then just read what happened then. And, and this is very important background to understand Paul's argument now in Philippians 3. Okay, So try to track this with me. The apostles and elders, starting at verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made, a clear, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips, Peter says, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And so we can see this very clear outcome. Gentile believers did not have to adhere to the Jewish rituals in order to be saved because salvation was through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And anything else outside of that was not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of that then serves as a backdrop to what Paul is countering now in Philippians 3, where clearly this group are still trying to spread this message and influence new Christians to say, if you truly want to be saved, you have to also adopt these other practices. Paul had to counter it in Galatians 2, and here we have it again in Philippians 3. And hopefully all of that helps to set the scene that that is then why Paul is able to say in verse 2, no, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. See, Paul is saying it is not an outward sign that saves you. It is God's work in your heart that saves you. And that is where you should place your confidence. How do you know you are saved? Not because of any outward measure, or outward behavior that you do, but because of what God has done in your heart. Therefore, you should have no confidence in the flesh. We should have confidence in Christ. You see, Paul uses that phrase, confidence in the flesh, three times. Certainly in the ESV, it's three times. And that's the crux of the problem. It, it's the outward display of circumcision had become the source of confidence for faith. It was this act that then proved that you were in God's community rather than an inner transformation by his spirit, rather than a coming to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. No, if you performed this outward sign, then you could be considered saved. And this is so dangerous because it, it can lead to people, including us. This is not just a message for them, including us. This can lead to us trying to do things, things that we, we think we should do, in order to be sure of our salvation. And actually, the, the, the negative side of that is it can erode our trust in Jesus. Christ alone for salvation. And so we start to trust the physical signs rather than the provided Savior. God has saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Yet in the first century, people were trying to add behavior to that so that you could be confident. If you want to be truly saved, you've got to do these things. And I wonder, are we, are we at risk of doing the same? See, Paul is talking here about trusting in the outward behavior as salvation rather than that behavior being the fruit 
of salvation. Paul's talking here about trusting in the outward behavior as the mode of salvation rather than the outward behavior being fruit of salvation. And of course, we must say that. As we've been reading through Philippians, of course, the life of a Christian is important. Of course, there should be fruit of God's work in our lives. We, what was uh, Philippians 1.27? That whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But you see the thrust there? You know the gospel. You've been saved by the gospel. So live on the basis of it. Not conduct yourselves so you can know the gospel. So you can be sure that you're saved. No, 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 no. It's the fruit of salvation works itself out in a Christian life. It is not the behavior that saves. And so that's what lies at the heart of Paul's argument. Because the assumption that anything other than Jesus can save us is dangerously wrong. Because we come to rely on all of these other things for salvation and all these other things cannot save. In other words, what's happening here, this is, this is a gospel of Jesus plus it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus observance to the law in this case. Which is actually no gospel at all. Because the gospel is Christ alone. And coming to him for salvation. And repentance and faith and knowing his grace alone. Coming to him by faith alone. And this is good news. See, out of, out of all of the boxes that could be ticked to be considered confident of salvation in man's eyes, Paul goes on to say he has them all. Let's read verses 3 to 4. If someone else thinks, or sorry, if someone else, uh, sorry, verses 4 and 5. Someone else thinks they have reason to be confident in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul is saying by every measurable attribute. He had more than enough reason to be confident that God loved him, that God had saved him, because look at all of these things he was doing. He could have great confidence in the flesh if that stuff was going to save him. And I wonder, trying to bring this into our life and what God might be wanting to say to us this morning, I wonder what statements could be comparable for us to make as we try to prove our confidence in the flesh. As we, as we look at our lives and think, I can be confident that I'm saved because I go to church. I can be confident that I'm saved because I read my Bible periodically. I can be confident that I'm saved because I don't swear that much. I can be confident that I'm saved because, because, because I do, I don't, I will. I... And all of these things are good things. Let me reiterate, all of those things are markers of someone who is saved. That is living a Christian life. But the problem is those things are not the source of our confidence. Those things are not the things that save us. Christ saves us. Grace, faith. So it is not, I know I'm saved because I go to church. No, it's, I go to church because I know I'm saved. It's just like we see on the screen. We don't trust in the outward behavior as salvation, but the outward behavior is a fruit of salvation. And let me explain it, because I think this is what Paul is getting at in, in this passage. If we put our confidence in that other stuff, if we put our confidence in our, our Christian upbringing, 
if we put our confidence in our church attendance record, if we put our confidence in our financial giving to church or other mission organizations, all those things are good and great and should be applauded and should be the life of someone who is genuinely saved. But if we put our faith in those things and saying that I know I'm saved because I do these things, then the risk is those things cannot save. Those things cannot take away sin. Those things cannot give eternal life. Christ does. And so I know I'm saved because Christ has died for my sins. I know I'm saved because he has paid the penalty in my place. I know I'm saved because he has ushered in eternal life for me. And he has promised in his word that in coming to him in repentance and faith, he will forgive. He has gone to prepare a place for those who trust in him. This is our God and this is good news. Because the reality is if we are saved by ticking boxes, then only some can be saved. Only those who tick the boxes are eligible. But grace, grace is open to all, regardless of what a mess of a life you think you have made, regardless of how successful a life you think you have lived. As many have said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us must come to Jesus in full repentance and faith, trusting in him and him alone for salvation. And this is good news. This is good news. And this is how we can have confidence in Christ. This is why our confidence should be in Christ. And we see this so clearly. If if we're not to have confidence in all of these good, maybe even religious activities, where are we to have our confidence? Paul says, squarely on Christ. We see it so clearly in verse 9. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, See, not not having anything that I can do to prove, not that I can work my way to righteousness, no. Well then, how, Paul, how? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is the heart of the matter. To be saved is to to be declared righteous. And the only one who has the authority to do that is God himself. It cannot be earned. We cannot work our way to righteousness. That's, it's, it's, yet again, it is the good news of salvation. This should make us, this should bring, as Paul has said through, so much throughout Philippians, this should bring joy to our heart when we know that it is only through Christ that we can be saved. Therefore, when we come to him, we can know the joy of the salvation that he brings because it's not about how good I can be. It's about bowing the knee to him. Because Christ is the one who can remove the stain of sin. Christ is the one who fully satisfied the holy requirements of the law. Christ is the one who paid the penalty of sin. Christ is the one who rose from the dead, showing his conquering power. Christ is the one who has now ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, securing that eternal home for us. It is Jesus. Christ has won. And he has won victory over sin and death. He has won forgiveness for those who trust in him. He has won an eternity for those who call him their Lord and Savior and cry to him as such. And that is why, that is part of the reason, there's so much more, but that's part of the reason why Paul is able to say in verse 8, that is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Because he is the one who brings salvation. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He is so much more worthy than any fleshly confidence we may seek to bring. No amount of religiosity, no amount of box ticking could come close to the value and worth of knowing Christ 
and being, as Paul said at the start of verse 9, being found in him. And nothing is worth that. He is the surpassing worth because it's only him who can save. And so because of that realization, because Paul knows the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in him, that's why he's able to list all of that very impressive mountain of evidence for his confidence in the flesh that he could have and say that it is garbage. The the Greek term there could actually be defined as dung, something rotten, something to be thrown out. And and so you can see the force that Paul is trying to convey his argument with. I have no doubt the original readers would have sat up at that and thought, goodness, Paul, you can't say that. We should do the same. All of that stuff, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for the law, a Pharisee, as for obeying the requirements, faultless. All of that is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. See, whatever gains, he says in verse 7, whatever gains were to me, however much he gained in his own mind or in the mind of others, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Everything, verse 8, is a loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. So nothing is comparable to knowing Christ. He is the highest treasure. He is the ultimate reward. He is the one through whom true righteousness is found. That's why he is the only one who can give confidence. He is the only one who can give assurance of salvation because it's only him, as I've said a million times already, it is only him who can save by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And as I've mentioned, this is good news for us all. Because we are saved through grace, not by effort and not by earning it. But that doesn't mean that coming to Christ and turning from our sin and committing our lives to following him, I'm I'm not suggesting that that is in any way easy. Jesus himself explains the cost of following him. But as Paul explains, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, yes, to to follow Christ means surrendering my plans, my hopes, my desires, my preferences, the way I want my life to go. Yes, I have to surrender all of that, and there's a, a cost to that. But that's all a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so he is the greatest He is the one who can save. He is the one who promises eternal life. He is the one who then walks alongside us through this life, guiding us by his spirit, transforming us into his own likeness. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning as your Lord and Savior, can I invite you to know him? See him in the pages of God's word. See the love he has for you, the forgiveness he offers. See what he has done to offer salvation to you. And then come to him, bow the knee to him. Confess your sin to him. Turn from that sin and turn to him. Claim him as your savior, yes, and as your Lord. And for those of us who do know Christ this morning as our Lord and savior, I hope you've been encouraged and challenged by thinking of how easy it is for us to let our confidence and the place of our confidence slip from Christ to some of these other things that we try to do. These we, 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 we let our confidence move from the sure foundation of Jesus 
and we start to value the other things. We, we, we start to think, that, look at all of these good things that I do, and I, isn't that proof of my salvation? Maybe it is your attendance and your participation in church. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's your friendship group. Maybe it is that, that religious background that you had or what God has done in the past that you hark back to. Those are all good things. Those are all great gifts of the Lord. But he has saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so allow him to be the focus of your confidence. How can you know that you are saved? Because Christ has saved you. And yes, your saved life will work itself out. There will be noticeable fruit of the work of Christ in your life. But that, that is fruit. That is not the, the, the basis of salvation itself. I was so struck, actually, by the warning that Christ gives to the church in Ephesus in Paul's vision in Revelation 2. And I wonder if some of us need to hear this again this morning. That Jesus commends the church in Ephesus, and listen to how he commends them. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Brilliant, Ephesian church. Wonderful. Keep going. But, verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. See, I wonder if some of us need to hear Christ's loving warning to us. To say, I see all the things you do for faith. And because of your faith, I see your activity. But do not forsake the love you had for me at first. invest all that time. It, it, it may even be for some, and I know this is controversial for me to say, as I'm sure the, the most common thing that I should say is, look, there's loads of ways for you to volunteer in church. Please come and help. It may be that some of you need to stop. Some of you need to take a break from all of the things that you do to remember the love you had at first. Because sometimes in our, in our very good and well-intentioned service for God, we can forget to nourish our love for him. We can forget to invest. We can be distracted from investing in our walk with Christ. And so our hearts can grow cold. And so we serve from a place of duty rather than delight. And if, that, if that's you this morning, please come to us and say, can I, can, I take a, can I take a break from how I serve? Because the, the primary thing that we as your elders care for is your spiritual nurture your spiritual growth, your delight in the Lord. Yes, there are things that we need done around the place, but if they're, if they're just duties to be done, now let's serve one another. And the way that we serve one another is by a heart that is supple, malleable in the hand of God. And the way that we do that is by knowing and treasuring and loving him. Now, hopefully not everyone comes and the rotors are now blank. But do, 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 you, do, you know what I, do, do you see what God is trying to say? This is not good advice from me, I hope. The, the Ephesian church were very good, even very godly. They were able to prove that some were false. They, were, they knew truth, but their hearts had grown cold. 
And may that never be said of us, individually and corporately as a body. May we not tick boxes to try to prove our faith, but rather may our hearts overflow with the love of Christ so that we serve him, so that we serve others, so that we conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that we see that progress in faith that Paul talked about in in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. All of those things are good fruit that we should see in the lives of others, but they are fruit of God's work in our hearts, not fruit that we put on and we tack on to try to make ourselves comfortable to know and safe that, oh, well, we must be safe. I must be safe. Look at all of what I do. God must look at me and be happy. God looks at the heart. So come before him. Trust him. He is saving you. He can save you. If we turn and come before him. So build your confidence on Jesus. He alone is the source of our salvation. The true gospel is always and only Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know him, please come to him. And if you do know him, live in the freedom that he brings. He's not looking for you to tick boxes for him. He's looking for you to love him and surrender your whole life to him. So let's never forsake our first love. And all of that leads us back to where Paul begins right at the start of chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He is the one who saves, and he is the one who then equips us to live a life for him, for his glory. Deep and lasting and faith-filled joy in the Lord. May we live as such. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your goodness and the gift of your word. And this morning, Father, we see so clearly once again, we, we marvel at your salvation that you have offered in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father. We thank you that it is only because of Christ that we can be saved, because he has fulfilled the law. He has completely dealt with the penalty of sin. Your wrath is fully satisfied in his sacrifice and you have accepted his sacrifice so that when we come to him in repentance and faith, we are then found in him. His righteousness imparted to us as as he takes our sin. What a mystery this is to us, Father. It is confusing for us at times. Perhaps even at times we... We wish we could measure ourselves in ways that we could tick boxes because at least then we would know. But Father, we thank you that it is only by grace and only in faith. Therefore, Father, all are welcome to come and repent before you. Father, I pray for, for those this morning who maybe who don't know you as their Lord and Savior yet. God, would you show them, open their eyes to see your wonder, your love, your holiness, their need for salvation, Father, and then the way that you have provided that. And God, for those of us who do know you as our Lord and Savior, who have committed our lives to you, whose whose sin you have forgotten and forgiven, God, I pray that that our lives would reflect that. Our lives would would demonstrate the, the forgiveness that we know, 
And Lord, therefore, we would be passionately, zealously, boldly, and confidently living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Lord, that you would forgive us for times when we have done things and sought to tick boxes in order to prove ourselves before you, Father. Thank you that your grace and your mercy cover over that when we do come and confess our sin to you, you are faithful and just. And so I pray, Father, that you would soften our hearts before you again. Give us a, a bigger and, and more clear understanding of your wonderful grace and how that grace is indeed transformative. Father, as your spirit is at work in our lives, would we see more of his fruit? But Lord, we want to be a people who abide in you. We want to be a people, Father, who, who we want to get our spiritual life from you, the vine. And so would you help us to invest the time, invest our effort. Surrender other things so that you would have the priority in our lives. And therefore, Father, we will live in the way that you want us to, by your truth and in your way. All of this, Jesus, we pray, would be for the glory of your name. As people see transformed lives, as people see your good news in action by our lives and hear your good news from our lips. Lord, may you get the glory. For only you deserve it because you alone have brought salvation to us. We thank you, Father. And we pray for your help. And it's in your wonderful, saving, righteous, victorious name we pray. Amen.